السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلیسنگ اللہ بی اپون یو آل ٹو اور لسنرس ویلکم ٹو اے دا شو آف ڈرائیو ٹائم اینڈ وائس آف اسلام ریڈیو مائی صاف از انیک اینڈ آئی بین جوائنڈ بائی ڈاکٹر طارق باجوا ان دا وائس اسلام اسٹوڈیو ٹوڈے وی ول بی ڈسکسنگ سم انٹرسٹنگ ٹاپکس which related to healthcare the need of uh, need to understand the new diversity and in the second hour of the show we will be discussing raising children prioritizing happiness or resilience during this time we will be having some guest speakers they will be discussing on these topics and they will be giving us insight the deep insight and to understand this topic further before <clears throat> going into the topic as i mentioned we have another co-presenter within the studio dr tariq bajwa i say assalamu alaikum please peace be upon you assalamu alaikum peace be on you and all our listeners uh, i hope you are all well um, yeah the weather it is getting grayer and grayer yeah. uh, but uh, i think our uh, spirits are high so <laughs> it will take us through this uh, winter season And uh, the topic uh, we are going to speak today, of course, uh, is a little bit, uh, um, as regards the terminology is concerned, might mm. be new to, to many people, not very really commonly used. Uh, in fact, um, even to the, to the uh, medical department, the health care, uh, not everybody is familiar with that. But gradually, it is, it's a new topic. It is something which is coming up recently. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, um, y- you know, the recent statistics have shown that it is on the increase um, there's about 20% of the world is neurodiverse according to the print online so that's uh, uh, the statistics so if 20% of population if we are talking about them that it's not something which is um, uh, uh, which is rare of course we we need to to know about it and we need to talk about it and we need to um, uh, get more people to, to be aware of that and that's the whole purpose of the Voice of Islam here uh, when we are holding the live drive time show uh, we are talking about the topics uh, to, to make people aware of the things which are surrounding us to make people aware of uh, both spiritual as well as physical Um, knowledge um, uh, which we have and we can share with people and of course with the development of uh, it is the scientific development which is helping us and it is here to support mainly the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadiyan uh, who was the Prophet Messiah and Imam Mahdi uh, uh, he is the reformer of the latter days he has informed and he was informed by the divine guidance that everything everything which is developing in the as a scientific development the, the basic purpose is so that the message of true islam spreads to the world the message that there is one god we believe in and he is the one who has sent all the messengers and the most important of all is the prophet muhammad the prophet of the holy prophet of islam uh, prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him and under his uh, uh, under his uh, 
guidance and uh, in in his love uh, came the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community. And uh, the development today we have all over is, of course, is to make people aware. And that is that is the purpose of holding these programs. So today's topic is about the, the diversity. Or, you know, it's, it's something called neurodiversity. And when most of us think of diversity, we think of things like race or sexual orientation. But there is a different kind of diversity, which you might not know. As I mentioned, it's called neurodiversity. Neurological differences like autism or ADHD, there's atten attention deficit, hyperactivity, disease. Is, uh, they are considered to be dysfunctional disorders and disabilities under the medical model of mental health, but these genes are not errors. And this is something to, to be understood, that these genes are not errors, but rather the, the result of variations in the human DNA that have and will continue to have advances for society. So it's just a different gene some people have, and that is why they have these differences of, uh, of the genes, and that's what makes them different. But they are not errors, they are not diseases, they are not illnesses, and they should be treated and they should be um, uh, sort of uh, uh, incorporated into the society. But for that, we need more understanding, because understanding and embracing neurodiversity in communities, schools, healthcare settings, and workplaces can improve inclusivity for all people. And it's important for all of us to foster an environment that transmits neurodiversity and to recognize and emphasize each person's individual strengths and talents while also providing support for their differences and needs. And to speak about it, we have our uh, first guest, uh, who is Dr. Elizabeth Weir. Uh, she is a postdoctoral research associate at the Autism Research Center at the University of Cambridge. Her research focuses primarily on the long-term outcomes of autistic adolescents. So she recently gave a, 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 a talk, TED Talk on her research, which is available on YouTube. And uh, we are uh, going to speak to her, uh, Dr. Elizabeth. Uh, welcome to our show. Uh, good afternoon. How are you this afternoon? Great, thank you, and I'm so glad to be able to talk to everyone um, today about autism. Uh, uh, yeah, that's great. That's, that's, that's what we are going to talk about. So can you please talk about the survey you have developed to better understand the physical health of autistic individuals? Absolutely. So uh, during my PhD at Cambridge, I developed this survey, just as you described, which uh, about 2,000... 400 people filled in, about half of which are autistic individuals and half of which are non-autistic individuals uh, who don't have a diagnosis. And we essentially asked people to, um, to fill in data all about their demographics, so say things like their age, their sex, their ethnicity, where, what country they live in, all kinds of things like that. And then also their medical history, so what conditions do they have and also, um, what is their family medical history? So what are the kinds of things that run in their family? And this is one study of many that are now happening, looking at the physical health of autistic people across the lifespan. So what we were trying to do is particularly recruit people all the way from adolescence into older adulthood, 
Um, and that was kind of the new aspect of our survey, because thus far, a lot of research has focused on people under the age of 35. Um, and even in that young age, we're finding differences in which autistic people are more likely to have a wide range of physical health conditions than others. So that was what we found in our survey. But we actually also found that this is true kind of at, across adulthood, starting from age 16 all the way up to age 90. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, uh, what I wanted to understand is that, uh, of course, you have collected this data. Is it because their physical health, they are more vulnerable physically? Or is it that they are not able to get access uh, to uh, health, uh, health care, uh, being autistic? Yeah, so I think it's a combination of a lot of different factors. Um, so there might be biological reasons for which autistic individuals might be at higher risk of physical health conditions. We don't really understand what those biological reasons might be. But as you highlighted at the beginning, we know that autism is a inherited condition. It's a, not an entirely genetic condition, but there is a strong genetic link when we think about autism within families. And so understanding whether or not those same differences and mutations across um, across the genome, we all have them as a person, as you said, has these small differences um, that make us all different. Um, but uh, whether or not those are overlapping with the likelihood that you have a physical health condition like diabetes. Um, so we don't understand that. But we also know that a lot of autistic people in childhood, we actually had another study using the same survey data that showed that adults as well struggle with maintaining healthy diet, exercise, and sleep patterns. Now, that's true pretty much of everyone, right? I would say most people um, find it difficult to manage keeping a healthy diet, um, making sure you're exercising enough and making sure you're getting enough sleep. But what we've really found is that um, the challenges that autistic people face might go above and beyond that. And some of the reasons for that might be structural barriers. So as you said, it might be that they have lower quality access to healthcare. So um, that we have a different study that I did during my PhD, which also showed that autistic people were more likely to report. Um, they kind of said, when I'm interacting with my doctor, I'm having poor quality access. I'm not um, communicating very well with my doctor. I'm not understanding what the next steps are for my health care. So very basic aspects of health care seem to be disrupted for a lot of autistic individuals. And then the other thing we need to think about is structural issues within our wider society. So um, less access to employment, less access to education, increased likelihood of having adverse life events. All of those things we know from many studies now that autistic people are more likely to face those challenges. And that, of course, is having an impact on your overall health and well-being and um, might be feeding into some of those challenges with maintaining healthy lifestyle behaviors as well. Okay, um, thank you for that, Doctor. Um, we are, I, I'm, I'm one of the clinicians as well, and I would like if you could let me know, along with all the other clinicians, on what to do with the data that was collected through your survey. How, how can um, we uh, sort of benefit out of that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think our study is, is 
it's really fitting into a bigger picture with a lot of other studies as well that are showing that autistic people have higher likelihood of having these physical health conditions um, like diabetes, um, challenges with um, sleep, you know, different kinds of sleep problems, uh, gastrointestinal conditions, a whole range of physical health conditions kind of across the body. So for clinicians to be aware that their autistic patients might be more likely than others to experience those things, to take concern seriously when autistic individuals come in saying, you know, my stomach is very upset, I'm in a lot of pain, those kinds of things, really taking the time to assess that and screen it and make sure that they're receiving appropriate support. And the other things are that there are some studies talking about, you know, what, what do autistic people say will help improve their healthcare access? And some of the strategies that autistic people have suggested are things like taking extra time, appointments, um, telling autistic patients, and really all patients, these are all things that probably would benefit a lot of people, um, but trying to prepare patients for how they should um, how they should step into an appointment. So maybe ahead of time you make a list of all of the things that you want to talk to your clinician about. Um, and then the other thing is being really explicit about what the next follow-up steps are. Uh, and the final thing is uh, allowing different forms of communication. So for some people, they might prefer using written communication. It might be easier for them to express what their symptoms are for physical health conditions or what they're feeling in a given moment if they're able to write it down. So these are small changes that we can think about for clinicians that might have a huge impact on improving quality for autistic people yeah that's that's good i think yeah of course i mean we should have a list of those people and they should be treated as if like we get more time for people who do not know the language because they are likely to take more time is that correct i've understood correctly yeah so as in maybe if you have the flexibility to plan more time for patients um, I understand that depending on the, you know, clinicians are on a huge number of, under a huge number of constraints, um, but trying to plan in extra time for patients who might need more support um, and also trying, you know, trying to really check in with patients even in limited times to say, you know, is, is am I being clear? Is it clear what the next steps are that, that you need to take or the next steps that I'm going to do? You know, checking in with people and making sure that, everybody is, you know, having the same understanding of the conversation. Those are the kinds of things that we can do to try and improve healthcare quality. Well, that's great. Um, one more thing which, which uh, you know, uh, comes to my mind is that uh, many a times, uh, you know, people nowadays, because of the uh, increased awareness of, uh, or, you know, autism as well as ADHD, more and more people are coming to uh, to the clinicians and asking for having a diagnosis and of course there is a long waiting list at the moment as far as NHS is concerned. Um, when you have collected data have you come across this problem? As in of people seeking diagnosis? Yeah. Yeah I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure that I, I can understand from a clinician's perspective it's probably you have many different demands but I think from, from my perspective it's not necessarily a problem 
it's it's more just that there's an increased demand, right, for, for this kind of support and receiving a diagnosis. And unfortunately, a lot of the ways that our system is set up, they require that diagnosis before additional support can come in. So say for kids in school, um, you have to have that assessment to show that you qualify for the particular um, uh, special educational needs or things like that in order for the school to actually set up those supports for you. So I think it's probably, you know, um, more of a fact of people recognizing what the opportunities might be for them to receive support. And that might be driving a lot of the increased demand for diagnosis that people might be seeing. But I mean, I definitely empathize and I certainly recognize for people who are waiting for a diagnosis, the the waiting times are incredibly long right now. And they, um, I'm not a clinician, but I think any human being could look at that and say it's unacceptable that people are having to wait years in order to be able to receive a diagnosis. So, um, you know, but I think that's probably where, where a lot of that demand is coming from is people realizing, actually, you know what, I, I might qualify for this and, and it could help me get some support that I need. Right. Okay. Um, you know, on, in your uh, TED talk in um, April, um, you mentioned about autistic people dying on average 16 years younger than others. Can you please shed some light on that? Yeah, there's a lot of studies, unfortunately, that are showing that autistic people are dying much younger than others and much younger than we'd expect. And while we we still want more data to understand what's happening. Um, there seems to be a kind of breakdown between, uh, or like a difference for individuals who have co-occurring intellectual disability with autism versus autistic people who don't have co-occurring intellectual disability. So among people who don't have intellectual disability, that group most likely to die by suicide um, and also to die um, from seizures, disorders, epilepsy, and other physical health conditions. Um, for people with co-occurring intellectual disability who are also autistic, those people are more likely to die from things like infections or choking, accidental deaths that we would see perhaps for people who are um, living in, in care facilities, um, which we also see in other populations, sometimes live in care facilities, um, as well as increased risk of dying by seizure disorders and, and epilepsy as well. So um, I think the challenge is we have these identified areas and we really need to be doing more to provide support to families and to individuals, kind of prevent that worst case scenario, somebody dying much younger than we would hope and, and then they should. Um, but the other thing is trying to understand beyond those, those areas I've just listed off, what are some of the other areas that are contributing to that risk? And I think uh, right now that research is still kind of ongoing um, and we're trying to actively work in that area because of course our, our goal is to ensure that autistic people are able to live long healthy and happy lives. And do you think there is a need for the reformation of current support systems to increase safeguarding and support for neurodiverse communities? Absolutely. I certainly think that we need more safeguarding. We need to find out the ways in which 
support would be the best served, right? And I think talking to neurodiverse people, autistic people, people with ADHD, about what would be the most helpful for them um, and, and trying to really listen to that and also then build the systems in ways that better meet those needs. Um, and I think right now, because so much research previously has focused on uh, young children who are autistic and not maybe focused on what that looks like across the lifespan, we're really still just starting to understand what some of the inequities are for people as they age. So it's certainly kind of top of mind to think about the ways how can we reform systems and what can we do? Um, but we're still kind of in an active process of research for, for exactly what we need to do to, to fix those systems. Um, we, we just uh, touched about, uh, you know, the, the diagnosis that, that, you know, people are waiting for it. Uh, how does someone find out that they are neurodiverse? And uh, are there online tests for neurodiversity? And if they are, are they credible? Yeah, so um, then... For, for receiving an official diagnosis, um, we would recommend people go and speak to their GP. That's currently the best way of kind of seeking support and going through the official diagnostic process. Um, if someone isn't sure if they qualify for a diagnosis and they think, oh, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's something that would um, be helpful for me, um, there is the Autism Spectrum Quotient, which is available on our website, the Autism Research Center at University of Cambridge. That's available for free. You can also find it online on a number of websites. Um, it's, so it's called the AQ, the Autism Spectrum Quotient, and there's a 50-item version and a 10-item version. And each of those, you'll um, when you fill in the test, it will give you a score. And based on that score, you'll be able to determine whether or not um, you might be likely to, um, whether it might be worthwhile to seek out an official diagnosis. So this is not a diagnostic test itself. It's just a screening tool that we have, but it can help you to give some idea of whether or not you, you might want to seek out a more formal diagnosis and, and whether or not that might be useful for you. That's very helpful. Uh, I hope that our listeners would have benefited out of uh, our, our talk. And thank you very much for joining us this evening. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, have, have a, a great nice night. evening. Thank you. Bye. So that was uh, Dr. Elizabeth Weir, who is uh, a research associate at Autism Research Center at the University of Cambridge. And uh, I think the last thing she mentioned is about if anybody who has a doubt, um, they can go on online. They can then look into this autism spectrum co uh, quotient, which is um, there are certain questions and uh, there are 50 items and there are 10 items. And out of that, you have to score uh, as as far as I know, my knowledge is concerned that, you know, out of the, there's criteria that you have to fit in the, at least nine mm -hmm. of them. Uh, so um, depending on that, you can score yourself. And you, if you think uh, because more and more um, it used to be like a, a thing which was diagnosed in childhood. But now more and more adults, um, they are coming or they have like uh, uh, adolescents and uh, adults, they, they think that <coughs> 
um, they are having uh, problems like lack of concentration or they have a problem with uh, um, so um, continuing to do one thing or th sometimes they are doing repeatedly the, uh, they feel comfortable to do the same thing um, so these are the things which might give give an idea that they might be into this um, autism so they can um, at least uh, go through the screening and then come uh, to approach to, to be referred for uh, for a diagnosis for once you have diagnosis then you're sure that this is what it is and then it is easy to sort uh, sort of uh, uh, incorporate into the society mm. because you are aware of what are your um, you 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 have like shortcomings as well as you have uh, advantages over others because yeah, you have so you possess certain mm. things which uh, uh, the others do not understand you can quickly <coughs> understand that and and that's that's how it can help um, so so that 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 was uh, great um, so now uh, we have another guest with us um, Lane. Kartomos, uh, he's a founder of AspirinNation.com. Mr. Lane Kartomos helps companies attain organizational wellness through authentic DEI. Lane applies a unique methodology to help employers uplevel their DEI programs. His TED Talks on Autism, Neurodiversity at Work, Works Best can be found on YouTube, and our listeners can benefit uh, uh, on YouTube by listening to it. Uh, I welcome uh, Professor <coughs> Lane uh, in our show. I hope you're having a good evening. I certainly am. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Professor, the very first question I would like to ask you, that why is it so important for our society to talk about neurodiversity? Um, it's a great question. I think it's like many other things. And so I, I guess I would say that um, what we can't talk about, we are probably not going to be able to solve. Mm -hmm. And right now there's an ever-growing awareness that there are many what I would call silent sufferers, people who um, are neurodiverse, maybe on the autism spectrum, not just themselves, but their family, their colleagues, those that depend on them, who uh, typically are, are a little bit less verbal than uh, neurotypical folks, and so I think it's a conversation that uh, it's a great time to have it uh, within the context and in addition to, to extend the conversation about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, elsewhere. So I guess I would say I see it as uh, a missing link, uh, mm -hmm. as, as it were, because um, this particular type of, of uh, diversity tends to go unseen most often. And as you're, you're in your previous conversation, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who, who struggle and they don't really know why. Mm -hmm. And if they avail themselves to, um, you know, this kind of information, uh, perhaps a diagnosis ultimately, it can really change their lives. True, absolutely true. Uh, you know, within the confines of uh, neurodiversity, language plays a big role. Inclusive, non-judgmental, and accepting language, uh, it's very important. Can you please elaborate more on this topic, please? Yes. Uh, so I, I think all of us as human beings are are really benefited by having what I'm just going to uh, term, it's sort of like in, in a new car, There's there may be a 
collision avoidance system. Mm -hmm. I think we all need that in our social interactions. It's really important. Um, and and uh, so just a couple of points with that. Um, I think number one, we, we can always be civil and empathetic despite our, our differences, not just philosophical differences, but in terms of how we express those uh, viewpoints and, and ideas. Um, I, I would say that, that sometimes conflict can yield positive outcomes um, if it's about a conversation that we would otherwise avoid not having. Hmm. Uh, and and there, there's genuine, in, in organizations, there's genuine concerns. Should we have the conversation or should we not? How do we facilitate this? Uh, what if we what if we lose control? What if things spiral out of hand and so forth? And so, in my work with organizations, I serve organizations. They're they're the customer most often, but primarily it's on behalf of benefiting people who are neurodiverse uh, and their families. Uh, because it, you know we spend a lot of our time at work. It's very important to us. We all spend a lot of energy in it. So, um, I, I just think that's important and. And just a clue as to why language is important. When I give a presentation, uh, someone invariably comes up to me and says, well, uh, my husband was just diagnosed with this, my child, and they are, they are disappointed and heavily burdened. And I, I spend time right there trying to help mm. them understand that they still can have a great life, uh, notwithstanding whatever uh, condition that they they are now aware that they might have. Um, so you know, I, I think those are some of the points. Language is important. And, and maybe just a quick example. Mm -hmm. um, Jeffrey o. Holland shared this once. He said that, you know, suppose somebody has a family and they have two, two daughters. And to one daughter they say, oh, you're beautiful. To the other daughter they say, well, you're so smart. Well, those are both good, well-intentioned ideas, but what's a subliminal message to to both of those children you know it might not could they not be both of those things or and why did you pick that particular uh uh wording uh, but i think one of the indoor outdoor all weather um approaches is to not use pejorative or negative terms mm -hmm. uh when we communicate with our team uh, our superiors, uh, stakeholders, whatever that might be. Of course, you know, more and more. Sorry, um, uh, more and more people are talking about diversity and and inclusion as well. But uh, you know, it can be confusing as well because you know how how do you help people to make sense of it? That's a that's that's a that's a really hard question, honestly. <laughs> so I'll, I'll I'll offer I'll offer this. Mm -hmm. um, I think. I think the, the, the essence of our society is based upon our culture, and a key component of culture is DE&I. Um, and so at the societal level, I would say these conversations are best channeled through appropriate civil and political processes. Um, there's a little bit different of an approach with with business, um, and I think there's a couple of threshold questions. The first is, should a private business be involved in 
we'll just say this is politics. And if the answer is yes, then the second threshold question is, um, is the business committed to achieving DNI in all of its variations? I don't think it's necessary uh, for a, an organization to commit to winning a gold medal at the woke Olympics, uh, so to speak. Um, there is a there's a diversity metabolism that can be accelerated and should be, um, but. But it's, it's important for participants to know that, well, we're all for gender equality, but not for this, not for that. And sometimes um, our intention is right, but, but we still might get it wrong. So a, a quick example, uh, not too long ago, I was at a, a business conference, and while the keynote speaker was being introduced, he was introduced with male pronouns. Mm-hmm. And he comes, to, he's a very senior leader. He comes to the stage to give his presentation, and he's wearing uh, a dress. And he spends the time uh, in his presentation talking about uh, their company and, and uh, their commitment to DEI. And, and he's a wonderful person, mm-hmm. uh, no doubt about it. But I was just wondering, um, I hope in their interview processes, in their performance review processes, that for people who they have on their team who may be neurodiverse, the classic uh, performance review question about communication skills is modified because if it's not modified, it's going to be interpreted as uh, the neurotypical version of what excellent communication means. There's not a job description in the world that doesn't talk about excellent communication, and that's fine, but it's just hard to find and even harder for uh, for people to model. So, you know, well-intentioned, certainly making progress. I totally agree that employees, uh, because we're all just people, should have the opportunity to uh, bring our whole selves to work. But there could be systemic barriers that screen out and, and uh, maybe diminish opportunities for people who may be on the autism spectrum. So how can companies benefit from employing neurodivergent candidates? Uh, I, I would say first to, to hire them, um, give them opportunities, uh, recognize uh, what their strengths are. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting. So, uh, you know, when someone's hiring a candidate, if they happen to be talking to somebody with uh, autism spectrum or Asperger's, uh, they may not hire that person because they don't give very good eye contact. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that really does happen. However, if I'm in the hiring chair, I might be relieved if someone does that because most candidates are, are staring at, staring into my eyes, trying to hypnotize me. So, <laughs> um, so, so there can be differences, but but think about it. Is it is it is it real that we don't hire someone because they don't look at us like like you know maybe someone else would? But I would just say quickly. Um, first of all, uh, strengths of a of people on the autism spectrum. They can work very long hours. They will be among your best workers. They're very astute technically. They have a very high visual IQ. They're excellent at pattern uh, recognition. Creative. 
uh, in, in their resourcefulness in terms of bringing new solutions to the table and so forth. And just from a dollars and cents viewpoint, um, people with autism, there's good research evidence that says that they stick around longer than uh, neurotypical people. So if you want to, for every dollar, every training dollar you spend on a new uh, uh, autistic employee, they're going to be there longer and therefore make that payoff better for you. And uh, I, I just think that's, um, you know, that it, ASD is not an intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, uh, maybe the most recognizable aspect is they're just a bit nerdy, mm-hmm. um, just a bit weird. And as I mentioned before, you know, once they have a sense of what drives some of that weirdness, uh, they can be incredible. So. Yeah, there's a, there's an article in a, you know which was written in in, the, in, a, in a journal for Association of Anesthetists, and they mentioned that uh, um, you know in, in in anesthesia they are, they are very successful because of their adherence to routines and repetitive behaviors. Um, so they that is what they do as an anesthetist, and they have been very successful in that practice. So. So this is this is something I th- I think which is interesting that uh, you know if we look into uh, if you are looking somebody to do a type of a job which where they are they have to do practically something which is to be repeated and is procedure based and solution focused then they they might be a, a, a better candidates. Just uh, in the end, I wanted to ask you just a, a personal question. It's up to you if you want to answer or not. So I'll just uh, ask you the question that uh, in your TED talk, you talk about an incident when your boss called you an oddball. How did that make you feel and what impact did that statement have on your life? So it's made a huge impact on my life. Um, I would say long before he called me an oddball, before I worked for that organization, I had often asked myself, am I odd? What's different about me? Because um, I I love to work. I work hard. Uh, I'm not quite so, I I will do it, but I'm I'm not quite so eager to socialize and play and have fun with, uh, you know, organizational people in, in organizations and so forth. Just kind of the after hours thing it's not it's not really my forte um but but when he said it um it was shocking um came out of nowhere but i think you know bless his heart he probably never really knew much about or knew a person who uh, was on the autism spectrum and i think what he really should have said is instead of you are odd an oddball he said should have said you are exceptional. Now, how can we make the most of that that quality that you have? But he didn't quite have that, you know, context for it. Um, I think I, I think even senior people um, may have no uh, no understanding of folks who may be um, on the autism spectrum in their on their team because it's. It's not revealed, or they just don't quite pick up on it. And uh, uh, what it's done for me is this: I was diagnosed relatively late in life, mm-hmm. uh, and the, the 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 outcome was shocking. And uh, I decided to embrace that rather than to deny it or or stuff it somewhere that would be convenient for me to forget. And so, what it's done for me, it's helped me to become. Um, 
even better. I have, I have a great career. Uh, I've, I've been up and down on the organizational uh, food chain, so to speak, and, and reversals come to everybody. And I guess one of the key takeaways for me is that um, when you have adversity, and whether you're uh, on the spectrum or not, um, just understand that, that God has a better plan for you and uh, be open to new possibilities. So it's been great, and uh, I, I really appreciate uh, yeah. that happening, actually. That's great. That's great. Uh, I think that that's what you should do. Take it as a <coughs> challenge yeah. and be successful. So wish you uh, best, uh, Professor Lane uh, Thomas. I think you have already achieved, uh, you know, more than many others. So thank you very much for joining us. You are an inspiration for, uh, you know, many of those who are, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of uh, into that category. They fall into that category as well as their general information. So thanks for joining us and have a very nice evening. Thanks so much for having me. I sure appreciate it. Thank Take you. care. So Bye. that was uh, Professor Lane Katamas, who is uh, who was talking about uh, you know in details and, uh, and and you understand that he has uh, mentioned about he himself uh, is uh, belongs to that category and he has achieved being a professor now uh, and he's a founder of AsperianNation.com uh, and he helps companies attain organizational wellness through authentic DEI. So uh, we, we do have our next guest who is, uh, um, who is again, you know, uh, um, she is from the Brain Charity, she's representing that, and she's with us uh, this afternoon. So uh, I will we'll go straight on to um, talking to her. Welcome, uh, Ms. Thuy Benjamin Thorpe. Uh, welcome to Drive Time Show. Um, Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. So uh, my first question to you would be that you represent the Brain Charity. Can you introduce briefly um, this charity to our listeners and uh, what sort of work is going on through this charity? Yes, so we are a national charity based in the UK, so our headquarters are in Liverpool, um, and we support people from all over the UK who have any form of neurological condition. So a neurological condition is any condition that affects the brain, the spine, or the nervous system. Um, Some are really well known and sadly quite common, things like stroke, dementia, brain injury, brain tumour. However, others can be very rare. Um, You know, only a handful of people in the whole of the UK might have that particular condition. Um, So we provide practical help, emotional support, which is things like free counselling and also social activities. And a big thing for us is that we really champion neurodiversity. I'm great. So it is, is it true that autistic individuals have poorer health and difficulties accessing health care? So I think in terms of healthcare, like because we're not really a, a medical based charity, um, I wouldn't really feel qualified to, to answer those particular questions. But I can tell you sort of around neurodiversity in the workplace and accessing work opportunities, if that's of interest. Yeah, sure. So in terms of, of, you know, what we do at the Brain Charity with championing neurodiversity and trying to get neurodivergent people back into work, a really big thing is helping people understand the sort of inherent skills and talents that can come with being neurodivergent. 
So, you know, previously um, it was seen as a disability to have a condition like autism, dyslexia or ADHD. Um, and obviously, you know, people are still able to gain reasonable adjustment from, from their employers as someone with a disability. But more and more people are sort of reclaiming, um, you know, the strengths that come with these conditions. So creative thinking, um, you know, being really good with numbers um, or just having special skills that a more sort of neurotypical member of society might not have. And what challenges might a caretaker face when taking care of someone with neurodivergent needs? Uh, um, and are the carers being supported enough, do you think? So I think in general, you know, we obviously do a lot of work supporting carers, like carers face really difficult challenges in the UK in terms of unpaid care. You know, there's a hell of a lot of people out there who care for a family member or a loved one without much support. So we really encourage people to reach out to organisations like the Brain Charity and, and speak to your local authority as well about putting an adequate care plan in place. In terms of support for neurodivergent people, I mean, the whole sort of concept of neurodiversity is, you know, all brains are different. And, and likewise, I think people have very, very different needs depending on, on them. So I think, you, you know, you have to really work with the individual. It can't be a case that there's one, a one-size-fits-all approach to someone who has a different neurodivergent condition. It really just depends on that individual person and working with them to, to help them with what they need. Um, so there, there um, of course, I mean, there's a, there have been uh, like lots of children, and of course, the parents can approach you. But uh, what about the adolescents who are just realizing that they might be the ones who are um, who have this diagnosis and they are not aware of it? But the the way if they, you know, they go on the net and they find out that they might be into that category, can they approach you and you would be useful? Yeah, definitely. And actually, something that's happening quite a lot now is that a lot of people are having sort of adult diagnoses. And in a lot of cases, that's coming about because maybe their children or a child might be diagnosed. Um, and then as they're sort of doing more research to help their child, you know, it is understood that there are genetic links with some of these conditions. So then the adult is sort of realizing that they fit some of those descriptors. Um and, you know, one thing that we hear from adults who are diagnosed with things like ADHD and autism, and they've maybe masked their whole life, um, is that actually it allows them to treat themselves with so much more compassion, because previously, some of their experiences might have been put down, um, you know, to mental health, or just they themselves thinking that those were sort of negative personality traits in some way which you know is a really really horrible upsetting thought so once people realize that actually you know that's just their brain working differently because of a condition it just allows them to you know reflect on past experiences in a much more positive way so we would definitely encourage you know people who are in need of help but also businesses who want to learn how to work better with staff that are neurodivergent um, to get in touch with the brain charity okay just for our uh, you know listeners again that how can an ordinary person raise awareness of neurodiversity and how how can we as a you know as as a common person um uh, help the neurodivergent people yeah so i think you know there is a lot of neurodiversity um, and neurodivergence out there like the whole the whole world word neurodiversity means 
diversity so you know just like diversity in any other area of life and I think it's really important to just try and you know surround yourself with that speak to people who've had different experiences and who have different conditions so realistically one in six people have a neurological condition so someone you know is definitely going to have a neurological condition that's just the law of probability Um, and you know and I think really helping people giving them a platform in the same way you know that we have questions um, around race and around women in the workplace and you know areas where historically there's been sort of prejudice and and subjugation it's just about raising people up giving them a platform if you're a manager of someone who's neurodivergent do your research and you know make sure that you're giving them extra opportunities and extra support where they need it you know that's not just a nice thing to do as a manager it's actually a legal requirement under the disabilities act um, right. Generally, it is considered that neurodiversity is, is, is like a, a disadvantage when you are particularly thinking of employing somebody. So can neurodiversity also be considered a competitive advantage? Definitely. That's like, you know, that's the whole, our whole MO. We really try and champion neurodiversity and make that clear. You know, as I mentioned before, like, say, for example, someone with autism, they might struggle giving a presentation in front of a group of people or they might struggle um, you know in sort of sharing sharing their thoughts in a group setting they might feel a little bit socially anxious um, in a meeting or in an interview but actually their you know skills with data or numbers or their factual memory or their ability to think laterally is far far superior than other members of the team you know you only have to look at lists of successful business people who are neurodivergent so Steve Jobs who founded Apple Richard Branson who founded Virgin you know some of the most incredible CEOs in the world are neurodivergent. So I think that tells you all you need to know, really, in terms of the skills that people can bring to the workplace. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that that would be encouraging for many people and uh, generally the, the population, because those who are going to employ these people, they need to be aware as well. Mm. So I think the awareness uh, is important that people are aware. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Benjamin Top, uh, for joining uh, Voice of Islam this evening and talking about uh, about this neurodiversity and uh, the brain charity. I, I, I hope that uh, uh, the brain charity is uh, very helpful and uh, it uh, is successful in the future. Thank you very much for joining us and answering to all, all our questions. Thanks so much for having me. Thank oh, you. No Have a nice Take evening. Care. Thank you. So that was Ms. Thuy Benjamin Thorpe from the Brain Charity and uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's very important that uh, you know the facts are that in seven people uh, there is uh, you know one in seven mm. she mentioned about one in six well, that's uh, even more than that uh, they, they do have a neurodivergent uh, condition and it's estimated that global population of 10% of adults is dyslexic 5% mm. uh, are dyspraxic and the 4% that's still a lot mm -hmm. a percentage 4% have ADHD, ADHD. And one to two percent are autistic. 
So autism obviously is, is different from ADHD, and to many people they don't, um, you mm. know, they can they can mix with these these two terms. But of course, uh, the pur- the purpose is that this is something new. The term neurodiversity was invented by an Australian Australian sociologist, Judy Singer, in 1988. That's not very far away, but you know, in, in 98, Harvey Bloom popularized this word in an article in the Atlantic. It's only a come into common use in the past few years and people are becoming more and more aware of that and and once once they become aware they are getting help uh, regarding that how they can uh, but one thing uh, if anything one must remember is that it is not an error of gene it is just a different gene and one has to um, incorporate according to what advantage we can have of having those people and um, and I think we, we are reaching at the end of this uh, first hour of our show now, and I would uh, like to mention one of the traditions of the, our holy prophet Prophet Muhammad so. peace and blessings of Allah be upon him he said oh Allah's messenger I want something from you somebody uh, you a woman who had a cognitive disability um, she addressed the holy prophet and said that uh, and and he replied oh mother of so-and-so uh, which side of the road would you like to stand and talk to me on so that I may do whatever you require of me so he, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, stood beside her on the roadside until she got what she needed. So she gave her due respect. Mm. He, uh, he listened to, to her, whatever her, her needs were. And uh, that this is, of course, it is a proof of his forbearance, humility, and patience in answering uh, the, the needs of those with special needs. And that's what uh, is the lesson uh, we need to learn. So we'll, we'll join you in the next hour after the news break. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. God Almighty has bound up belief in His own existence with belief in His messengers. The reason for this is that man is invested with the capacity of believing in the unity of God as stone is invested with the capacity of flaring up. And a messenger is like the flint which elicits the spark from the stone by striking it. It is, therefore, not possible that without the flint, that is to say, without a divine messenger, the spark of the unity of God may be ignited in a human heart. It is only a divine messenger who brings down Tawheed, belief in the unity of God, upon the earth, and it is achieved only through Him. God is hidden and displays His countenance only through a messenger. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace be upon all our listeners. You are joining us back in the second hour of Drive Time Show in Voice of Islam Radio. We will be discussing an interesting topic about raising children, prioritizing happiness or resilience. As we know, the parents uh, always seek the best for their children and uh, they try to make their life easy for them. Of course, it is the parents' responsibility to feed, clothe, protect, and love their children. However, physiologists have argued that focusing too much on children's happiness is not a permanent solution to keeping them happy throughout their life. Instead, resilience is a kill that would help kids cope with the unavoidable challenges that the world throws at them. So we will be discussing, of course, the topic 
It's very challenging. Raising children is not an easy thing. And many parents want to, you know, uh, raise their children in such a way that they want them successful in their life. They want to see that they always uh, go to the path or, you know, follow the path which is right for them. And we will be discussing uh, this topic further. And I would like to request Dr. Tariq Bhavi, who would like to say anything uh, on this particular topic. Of course, um, uh, you know, generally, uh, it's, it's an important topic, children. Everybody mm. says children are dear to everyone. True. And they uh, they want to see them happy. Uh, but, of course, um, uh, there are uh, challenges in the world which they have to face. And they also want that they should be prepared um, to uh, so to face those challenges successfully. And that's why they want to train them um, properly. Um, of course, their responsibility, you know, that, that they have to feed them, they have to clothe them, they have to protect them. Everyone loves the company of the children. And, um, um, of course, children's happiness is the most important thing. And uh, if you ask anyone, uh, you know, that you know they they are ready they are willing to sacrifice anything for the sake of a smile on their child's face so that that, that is a human nature that that's what is incorporated into you yourself however one the guidance we have been given by our holy prophet prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him is that uh, moderation is best in all affairs and that's what the teaching of the holy quran is that, that, that uh, you know, uh, that is ummatam wasatan. That's it's a moderation, and, and that is uh, also a tradition of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where he says that harul umure the moderation is uh, the best in all affairs. So when parenting, we need to find the right balance between the happiness approach and building resilience approach. Uh, resilience means that uh, resilience is a skill that would help uh, our kids cope with the unavoidable challenges that the world throws at them. So they are successful in their lives. So uh, a very interesting topic. We earlier spoke about the neurodiversity, and this, this topic is also related to neuropsychology. You know how uh, or what impact one has on the children, because children uh, have uh, growing minds, uh, very sharp minds. They observe uh, everything, what they see. Uh, it's not necessarily that they they would listen to what you tell them. They but they observe and they adopt what they are observing. So this is the so one of the most important thing is that you have to become a role model for them, for yourselves to to be a role model for them, because they they mimic whatever you you do, and they will follow whatever you do. So those parents who focus too much on happiness, they can be attributed to having a permissive parenting approach. Um, that means that they would allow anything. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, there was a psychologist, Diana Bombrin, identified different dimensions of parenting through her research. And one of which, as mentioned just now, is permissive parenting. And these types of parents, they, according to Diana Bombrin, are more responsive than they are demanding. They allow self-regulation and they avoid confrontation. So this means that the children are rarely disciplined as parents are very lenient. They're nurturing, they're communicative, 
Uh, and uh, you know, you you remember one of the traditions of the one of the saying of the Holy Prophet, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, who said that uh, respect your children and cultivate good manners in them. So that according to this tradition, I I think they they seem to be following that tradition. An article published uh, on a magazine, Big Think website, that's uh, mentioned that a short extract. Um, which was taken from Good Insight, A Guide to Becoming the Parent You Want to Be by Becky Kennedy, who is a clinical psychologist. And she has written that I was pretty lonely, depressed child. She's talking about herself, uh, mentioning that um, um, she... um, Oh, she's, she's mentioning about a mother, and she says, I was a pretty lonely, depressed child. Uh, I want to be a different parent to my kids than my parents were for me. My partner gets annoyed with me because he says, I'm always rescuing our kids and making their lives too easy. Mm. Is that so bad? Don't you want your kids to be happy, Dr. Becky? So this is this is what our mother has uh, spoken to to Dr. Backy. So um, this this was a question from her that you know obviously you want to, your kids to be happy. So the, the both partners and usually it happens that you know so God Almighty has created that some, usually there is a balance between the two parents. So the one parent might be the, of the approach where he has uh, more more like authoritarian approach uh, and they they want to be uh, they, their children to be resilient, whereas. The other partner, the uh, the other half, might think um, the better approach would be the permissive approach, where they want to keep your, the, the children happy. So there is a, a balance is created uh, between between the two. But sometimes there can be a contradiction, and uh, and there could be problems when they are not willing to um, sort of compromise with each other or agree to what would be the best approach for for the child and of course as i mentioned earlier the best approach is moderation to to keep a balance between the two so stating her response dr becky um, kennedy who's a clinical psychologist she has written that i don't think happiness is what these parents are really talking about i think there's something much deeper going on i for one don't think we are talking about cultivating happiness as much as we are talking about avoiding fear and distress. Because when we focus on happiness, we ignore all the other emotions that will inevitably come come up through uh, throughout our kids' lives, which means we aren't teaching them how to cope with those emotions. And again, how we teach our kids through our interactions with them to relate to pain or hardship will impact how they think about themselves and their troubles for um, their future life for the decades to come. It's also important to add that parents sometimes spend huge amounts of money on buying children gifts, toys, clothes, etc. However, spending time and giving them your yourself, your time, uh, is is more important. Experience um, things, you know, being with them, that is important. 
Sometimes parents, they give gifts as a reward to children on the basis that they follow an instruction. So, however, gifts given by bribery and reward will instill expectations in them that if they do something, then they must get something in return. So, they in, the habit is inculcated in them that they're always expecting something if they do something good and it's not out of that that's what they should be doing. Uh, in this way, children may act up uh, if they do not get what they want. They, they can, you know, they can be annoyed at that. They can be unhappy about that. So parents give in to keep the peace and keep their children happy. So sometimes just to, to agree to everything what the child wants. So if they keep on agreeing on everything, then that is, uh, you know, because they don't want to, they want to keep the children happy. So, and then there is a, there is no limit which we need to, te to teach them. A uh, simple principle is chasing money or wealth over the needs of our children will be detrimental both to our own families <clears throat> and to the society at large as well. Because you are these, these children, they, they are the ones who are going to make the society. And uh, if they are not uh, trained well, hmm. then of course, uh, you know, the society you are creating is, is going to suffer. True. You know, as we have discussed, <clears throat> uh, the downside of focusing too much on happiness, we now will focus on resilience approach and how the resi resilience approach should be. While the permissive parenting approach is one extreme, the authoritarian parenting approach is another. In this style, uh, their parents are more demanding than they are responsive as children are expecting to abide by strict rules without questioning. So this parenting style often seeks to build resilience in children through punishing them in case of disobedience. So, uh, you know, this is also uh, is not the balanced approach to, rising to, to, to raise children. Uh, this type of parenting leads to spoiling children more, more and more. And, uh, you know, uh, rather than, you know, putting uh, bring them on the uh, right path and uh, tell them there was the right thing for them, what happened that they show obedience, they show resilience. So wisdom requires proper anger management. So one thing we should have to work on, all the parents, myself, I you know try my best, that wisdom requires proper anger management. At times, parenting can be very stressful, frustrating, or at time, you know, intriguing. At such times, we need to swallow our pride and exercise self-control and refrain from meaningless threats and verbal or physical abuse. The founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, said, an individual with self-respect and self-control who is also forbearing and dignified has the right to correct a child to a certain extent or guide the child, but a wrathful and a hot-headed person who is easily provoked is not fit to be a guardian of children. So it is very necessary that when we are, you know, uh, raising our children, we have to have self-control. We should give them, you know, our instruction, not in a way of threats. If we want to tell them, we want to explain them, we should be sitting down with them, should be explaining to them rather than, you know, giving them threats, and ultimately what happens, they show more obedience, they become resilient. Now, to discuss this uh, topic further, we have our first guest with us. She's Dr. Maureen McSwinney, and uh, she's an experienced and practitioner psychologist, 
trained to doctor level and registered with with the HCPC. I welcome her in the Voice of Islam show. I hope you're having a nice evening. Hello, yes I am. I'm happy to speak with you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, you know, as a child uh, psychologist, what are the most common concerns with which parents have sought help about their child? Yeah, sure. So it kind of depends on what setting. So I, I work in mental health settings as well as um, learning and education settings. Um, I would say probably the biggest concern that parents usually have in relation to their children, um, including adolescent children, um, is anxiety. So anxiety is um, by and large definitely the, the biggest concern that, that people um, have in relation to their children, I think. And that can really present or manifest in lots of different ways. So um, a lot of children with anxiety will have sleep issues. They might find it difficult to go to school. Um, they might have behavioural difficulties, um, poor concentration, eating difficulties, um, that kind of thing. Um, and definitely in, in late adolescence, it becomes very focused on social settings. So that real preoccupied um, thinking and, and, and worry about what other people are thinking about them or how they're being evaluated and judged, which really makes sense when you think about adolescence. Um, other concerns are, are really about um, in more learning domains, more about kind of things like why why does my child, who seems really intelligent, have difficulty going into school um, or doing well in exams? Um, how can I help them stop stressing over their GCSEs or their A-levels so much? Um, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the, the concerns vary quite widely and, and it's usually about parents really trying to mm -hmm. help and do the right thing to, to support their child. So in the context of uh, child development, I mean, you, you were talking about raising children. What is the best approach? Is it Should it be a resilience approach? Should it be make the child happy? So what would, uh, uh, what do you think? What should parents prioritize, happiness or resilience? Um, well, I think the good news is that parents don't need to decide between the two. Um, so for me, really, the foundation of true resilience and true happiness is the same thing and, and that's emotional security and um, so by that I mean you know a child really feels very confident in how loved and positively regarded they are and um, and that they feel very secure and, and confident in that knowledge and um, that they're unconditionally loved regardless of maybe mistakes that they might make due to factors within or outside of their control um, or setbacks that they experience you know really feeling that actually ultimately whatever happens, no matter what happens, their parent or parents truly love them. Um, you know, a resilient child is one who's willing to try new things, risk failure, they're able to bounce back from adversity, you know, so when bad things happen, it doesn't crush them, you know, it doesn't make them question their worth or, um, you know, it, it doesn't consume them. They're not kind of trapped in that cycle of thinking over and over again about what terrible things um, or even minor things, seemingly minor or trivial things, um, that mean a lot to them have happened. Um, what's really interesting about this is that studies have suggested that children who have gone through really terrible adversity, so things like trauma, um, injustice, you know, things due to abuse or, or war or neglect, they too can be resilient. And really the factor that's been found to make a difference is that they've got at least one key adult, um, usually a parent, who believes in them and is, is loving, you know, gives that unconditional positive regard and warmth. 
Um, and when children are resilient, then they they can cope and thrive despite setbacks or, or adversity. Um, and, and really the way that parents or adults can do that is just teaching children that no emotional state is, is permanent. You know, no matter how horrible this feels right now, you can cope. Um, and giving them a constructive narrative around their experiences. You know, so what, what, whatever's happened to them, that they're not internalizing it as reflecting badly on them. Um, and resilient children really internalize these messages from adults. Um, so it's great because parents can, can very easily have really positive influence about how resilient and therefore how happy their child can be. Um, and I think when you think of resilience in that way, it's much easier, I think, to understand why truly resilient children are truly happy children and vice versa. Um, so yeah, I, I would say there's no choice to be made between resilience <laughs> and happiness and that choice is an illusion. Um, and I think particularly when you consider that happiness is more than just like that fleeting state or moment of joy, it's more about that general state of equilibrium and balance um, where you experience knockbacks, but it doesn't knock you down for long and you bounce back. And um, you know, your happiness is far less fragile when you're truly happy and, and resilient. So to what extent, you know, the, the children should be disciplined? Yeah, well, I think it, I think for me, fundamentally what children need is, is love and, and boundaries. Um, so I guess discipline comes under the category of boundaries. Um, there needs to be limits on what children are and are not allowed to do. Um, I think discipline often has really negative connotations, mm-hmm. um, perhaps kind of more so over the last few years, but... Yeah, children definitely need need limitations and need boundaries on what they are and, and aren't allowed to do. Um, I think you can use, I'm going to use the word boundaries rather than discipline, but I think you can use boundaries and still have mm-hmm. a very resilient and, and happy child. Um, often what really matters is, you know, how, how kind and how warm um, those boundaries are put in place and that they're fair. And often it really helps that the child knows in advance, you know, and, and the boundaries and the expectations are made really clear. Where it can go a little bit wrong is if um, the boundaries aren't very clear um, or they're they're not very fair. Usually if you're able to give a robust and, and good explanation to a child, um, you know, it, it, it can make the fairness a lot more clear. Um, and sometimes they won't be able to understand, you know, why, why a certain boundary or limitation is, is needed, um, perhaps because of their particular age or stage. But... Yeah, I, I, I would say boundaries are, are really important. Um, you can't have a truly resilient or truly happy child without them. Mm-hmm. Um, but similarly, you know, the, the way in which the boundaries and what the boundaries are, how, how they're put in place, will have an impact on the resilience and happiness as well. So what, what, what would you say, what are some of the behavioural uh, traits of a resilient child? Yeah, so you notice um resilient children aren't afraid to to give things a go um they're willing to to risk failure they're willing to make mistakes they move on from failure quickly um they don't identify with negative feelings or experiences so by that i mean you know if they do badly on an exam or if they make a mistake they don't then internalize it as they themselves are bad or they themselves are a mistake um, they've got a very kind of constructive, appropriate and adaptable approach to to yeah, setbacks or, or adversity. Um, they'll you know they'll they'll just have a very positive, constructive way of um, of thinking about their their negative experiences. They don't ruminate. So by that I mean they don't kind of engage in 
lengthy repetitive thinking where they're kind of consumed and circling round and round replaying you know what happened and you know what could have happened etc um they yeah you you'll notice them because they're they're not afraid to give things a try they're the ones in the classroom that are putting the hands up um you know giving things a go and and they're not terribly ashamed or embarrassed or upset if if they happen to get something wrong so they're more confident on the they are more confident yeah because ultimately i mean if you if we could kind of go back to that idea that they're really emotionally secure and they they're very confident and secure in that feeling of being loved and worthy mm-hmm. um you know to them a, a mistake or or making an error or having a setback doesn't change the one kind of arguably most important thing that you know they they have that internalized parental um parental love um regardless of whether they mis- make mistakes or not it it doesn't matter because they are still loved um and even if a mistake or a setback feels quite horrible in the moment or really horrible in the moment they also have learned over time that actually those emotional states pass you know nothing lasts forever it's just kind of like watching clouds drift by in the wind they they will eventually clear and um, so yeah they are they're confident mm-hmm. they they don't they, their self esteem doesn't depend on whether they get something right or or wrong they they have that inner resource of positive self esteem and positive self worth already and that isn't changed by external circumstances what do you think about the parents who are like trying to keep their children happy they like fulfill all their demands like most of the time and uh, just just to 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 keep them happy so that they they don't want them to um to suffer so they mm. they would uh, go to any extent just to fulfill what their demands are so that they are not um is is just to just to keep the peace uh, at home mm-hmm. so they would uh, sort of uh, give in to the children yeah i mean um that's that's not a helpful <laughs> way of approaching <laughs> parenting for sure um i mean arguably if a parent is conceding to every demand and every whim of the child then the child is in control and parents parents need to be the ones um again in an appropriate and not kind of overbearing authoritarian way but parents need to have have the control children need us to be they rely on us and to be the ones largely in the driver's seat. I mean, as children get older obviously, we give them more independence, more autonomy, but within reason. Um so I would say kind of conceding to children's whims and kind of doing everything to make them happy, fundamentally it, it really won't make them happy. It may kind of appease them in the moment, but again, thinking of that kind of true happiness, um you know, it's it's not going to give them that sense of I can relax. I don't need to worry because mom or dad or mom and dad are both in control. Um it, it it in my experience it typically results in a child feeling quite anxious um and uncontained. So, so, so might might create difficulties later on in their lives as well, isn't it? For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um because again, you know, like everything in in parenting, it has to be you know, age appropriate and and if children have never had experience of the adult being um in control and they've always been the ones in control then yeah you get a 25 year old or 45 year old who still has some of the emotional regulation skills or behavioral qualities of a 5 year old because they've they've kind of been in the driver seat since then they've they've never kind of switched gear or or been able to kind of adapt um their style of relating to other people and um, so yeah it 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 it's very much associated with with anxiety um when yeah when parents give 
give far too much or all of the control to the child. Um, yeah, in your uh, such as in your example of doing everything just to make them happy. Um, right. So, uh, so Maureen, just uh, just just in the end, uh, one last question is, uh, you know, what tips generally you would give to uh, you know to our listeners, the parents who are raising children. Uh, what tips would you give to help nurture their uh, upg- upbringing of their children? Um, I mean, I think in a nutshell, children need love and they need boundaries. Um, so they, you know, they need that unconditional sense of, of positive regard and, and emotional warmth from their parents. And um, they need their parents to set appropriate boundaries and limitations um, on what they can and can't do. They need parents to... Um, I guess another one of my tips would be that, you know, helping children to make sense of their emotional experiences, because um, that's, again, another really, really common thing that I come across in, in my practice as a psychologist, is children who have emotional difficulties for whatever reason. Um, and one of the really key tasks, I think, as a parent, as your child is growing up, is helping your child to have a, a language around how they can describe their internal experiences, so their, their emotions and their thoughts. And often that starts with just trying to make it explicit. So things like, oh, I'm wondering if actually you feel quite frustrated because your brother was really struggling to share that toy with you. Um, you know, just really simple things like that where you're kind of making the internal experience more external by, by putting words to it. Um, I'd say don't try to be perfect as a parent. It's actually not very helpful at all to be perfectionistic um, mm-hmm. because you're modeling a very unrealistic um, standard and expectation. Um, a very, very key concept that I, I constantly kind of come back to in, in my work is this idea of being a good enough parent. Um, so the idea that you'll get things right and you'll get things wrong, um, but really what matters is that, you know, when when you get it wrong, because mistakes will always happen, um, that you, you, you can apologise or repair or make up for it in some way. But, it's you know, it's important for children to see their parents modelling um all of the messages that we give them or hopefully give them which is you know it's okay to make mistakes uh, but they're all you know they're they're watching us you know they're looking for our reactions and how we deal with things yeah. so it is important to kind of walk the walk as well as talk the talk um and then i guess just lastly i'd probably say let children play children have a really innate need and propensity um for play and playfulness and i think we've a lot to learn from them actually um because I think the more kind of playfulness and, and joy that you can have in your life, and children really are remarkably skilled at seeking joy and playfulness out, um, it's really important. Um, and through play, they, they develop a lot of skills, um, including emotional regulation skills, um, negotiation skills, social skills, um, problem-solving skills. Um, and it's also important for them to have downtime, so it's important for children to have time where they're bored and they've got unstructured time. They're not overstimulated all of the time. Um, nice. Yeah. I, I could probably give give a, a lot more, but yeah, they'd be my top tips. I think. I, yeah, that, that that that's brilliant. That's uh, that's wonderful. Um, just one thing I've just came to my mind that you know, if the children are getting anxious, what is what is uh, the best thing the parents can do? Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting question actually, because I think one of the things that I didn't mention, but I do feel quite strongly about, it, is if a child is feeling anxious one of the key messages that you can give them is this feeling will pass and the other thing is i think anxiety is usually where someone is overestimating the degree of threat or overestimating you know the 
the extent or level of challenge they have to overcome whilst really underestimating their own coping skills. Um, so I would say try to give the, the message that um, it's okay, you're not dealing with this alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to help help you through this and these feelings will pass. And you do, they, they are tolerable, they are bearable. Um, so you might have a sick feeling in your tummy about you know going to the music exam, but that feeling will pass. And the best way for you to kind of learn that that feeling will pass is to go there, do the exam, get the the experience of of putting your emotional regulation skills into practice, and learning that actually, um, you know, those those feelings dissipate, but also that you learn really good skills in the meantime of you know practicing practicing your relaxation skills. I think if parents can build in any time, um, the earlier the better, but it's never too late, into kind of like the daily routine where they're helping their child to kind of experiment with. Mm-hmm. and practice a range of relaxation strategies that they can then use when when things get a bit anxious or stressy and um, that's really really helpful and um, developmentally it's you know one of the one of the key things i think people can do to to support and offset any later difficulties in adolescence or or later childhood or even adulthood um that's brilliant uh, thank you very much uh, marine is a pleasure talking to you and i hope our listeners have uh, have benefited out of uh, our conversation a lot um thank you for joining us this evening and have oh, a nice it's my evening. pleasure thank thanks you. you too thank you very much thanks take care um, that was uh, Dr. Maureen Maxweeney. Um, uh, she's a, an experienced practitioner, psychologist, trained to doctoral level and uh, registered with HPC. She is uh, uh, she has given us, uh, you know, in detail her experience of, you know, how we should uh, raise our children uh, with a balance of resilience as well as keeping them happy and confident, <coughs> and uh, how how we can uh, be uh, um, supportive for our children. And as well as um, she has stressed upon the um, keeping the boundaries and uh, telling the children about their boundaries. So these are the boundaries. And then um, they would uh, sort of grow up into a resilient person as well as happy and confident children. So um, as regards the from the Islamic point of view, raising children, um, uh, parenting uh, it needs to be done with wisdom because the mm-hmm. general advice of the Holy Quran is uh, when you are calling somebody towards you um, uh, particularly uh, if you're calling somebody towards uh, God Almighty the, yeah. the the advice which has been given in chapter 16 verse 126 is call unto the way of thy Lord with wisdom and goodly exhortation and argue with them in a way that is the best um, sometimes you come across <coughs> where you have to you have to argue with you know you you have to um, explain things because particularly in this society you know it, it is considered as an open mm. society you encourage people you encourage your children to question and uh, rather than uh, you know um, just stopping them or and discouraging them to ask mm. questions you should encourage and answer. Uh, to their questions uh, as uh, as best as you can yourself uh, because you are the the first as a parent you are the first one to answer your question and of course the teachers uh, depends on what type of teachers you have and many a time you see that you have um, you have made a uh, uh, you know the, the children they have uh, raised to a very high standard when they have found somebody who guided mm. them at the right time uh, and True. spoke to them uh, and um, sort of gave them 
good advice at, a, uh, at the time when they needed. So that, that makes a huge difference. So this particular verse, it applies to many different areas of life in the perspective of parenting. It demands that we stay moderate in our parenting approach as it is closer to wisdom. And uh, when parenting, we need to find a balance between negligence and indulgence and trust and suspicion. Similarly, we need to know the difference between advising and nagging and monitoring and snooping. So this is especially critical when the children are in their adolescent stage. Many, many parents, they feel, um, oh, well, the children were very, they were very good. They were, but as, as, as they have grown up, they are going into their adolescent, they see that their, their behavior is changing, their attitude, because they have more questions. Sometimes, because there are some of the questions in their minds, they are not un, they are, uh, they go unanswered or they are not responded to the way they would like to 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 address those questions, or have an answer to those questions. They might uh, distance from you, and and that is not very good uh, for the development of the child um, raising the children. So wisdom also demands that we know our children by getting personally involved in their lives with mutually respectful, frank, and honest communication. Many times our current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hands. He's, uh, he's always been, um, you know, uh, he, he guides with his own example because he would... Uh, he would quote his own examples, his parents' examples. He would also quote, uh, um, you know, how he was treated and how uh, how one. Uh, he's, he's guiding the parents as well as the children that how they can. And he has always um, told that you should be friendly with your children, and you should ha develop with them so that they you don't become something which is fear. You they they become you know afraid of. Mm -hmm. So you should be friendly with them. You can have uh, discussions with them, and uh, there they should be a, a, a frank relationship. But the respect uh, should be the factor that you know the parent and child child relationship that should be there. We we should know the who is uh, the friends of our children, what are their interests, what are their aspirations, uh, what are the challenges they are facing, what are their preferences and priorities. What are their tendencies? What do they like? What field would they like to go? What are their interests? All these things, they, they make a difference because if you are there to, to assist them, to support them in solving their problems, uh, whatever on their, is on their mind, uh, if you, the, you are there for them, they, you become friendly. You can, they, they can trust you as a friend and that um, makes a huge reformation in them and they would be much more confident and um, uh, so so our parenting approach, as uh, you mentioned, one of the quotations from the founder of the uh, Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ulama Mirza Qadiyan, that's a great quote. Uh, 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 and I, I, I always mention that, you know, you have no right to be uh, uh, sort of aggressive in any way. Mm. Uh, all the time, you should have your your sen you should be in your senses when you are trying to discipline your child because if you if you look at the examples you know see if you look at the examples of the holy prophet may peace and blessings of allah be upon him how did he um, train his children hazrat fatima yeah. is one of the most knowledgeable women and um, then we see that um, he he guided and trained uh, his his wives 
who trained the whole of the you know the Muslim community mm-hmm. at that time. When then we see the example of the Holy, the, the promised Messiah, Islam, uh, on whom we peace. He you know looking at his children, mm-hmm. his ne- his approach was never he was never harsh to any of his ch- children. Many times he would say, he would listen to the complaints about you know his son or yes. he's not very brilliant in his <laughs> his uh, academics, and, uh, and and it's very interesting how how he he dealt with that. You know, once uh, I remember there was an incident when, uh, uh, particularly Hazrat Mir Nasir Nawab Sahib, mm-hmm. who was his father-in-law, and of, of course he was concerned about uh, the Prophet Muhammad's uh, uh, elder son Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed. And of course, the promised Messiah, um, uh, on whom be peace, he was well aware of what is what what talents he has mm. got, and uh, he said that you know he he doesn't take much interest in his studies, mm. and uh, you see his handwriting is so poor, mm. and uh, the the promised Messiah said, okay, uh, uh, bring a, 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 a pen and a paper, mm. you know, and he said, okay, just write it on 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 this. And uh, the young uh, child has it, Mr. Mahmoud Ahmed. He he wrote something which was uh, uh, which which was not very uh, sort of pretty, or, mm. but it Neat. you know it was readable. Mm. And he mm. said, uh, "What's wrong with it? <laughs> this is <laughs> absolutely fine." Absolutely so fine. so that was uh, his approach. That he was encouraging, and he always mm. encouraged his children. And his, uh, the only thing when he disciplined children was only one one or two incidences mm. when he he found that um, the Holy Quran oh. was. Uh, you know, they out of their innocence probably um, uh, the the Holy Quran was about to fall, and he he was um, harsh uh, on on his child and said that you know you should respect this book, uh, otherwise you don't see any mm. any incidents. So similarly, we see the incidences, and then we we see uh, how uh, how they treated and how they guided us that this is the way mm. you can. And, and they were the best children. They you know yes, they raised. Uh, you can't have any comparison with them. And so, indeed, of course, you know, uh, one of the main thing is to connect the children with God Almighty as well. And you do such a bringing that they know their God and have uh, you know, love and fear. This is one of the, you know, uh, things which we need to uh, instill in our children. So uh, to discuss this topic further, <clears throat> we have uh, our next guest with us is the Mustafa Sadiqi. He's a missionary of Ahmadiyya Muslim Community UK. Uh, I welcome him in the show. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you, Mustafa. Sir. Thanks for having me. Zakala for joining. Uh, how important is to raise children uh, to love God Almighty and become close to Him? Should a spiritual aspect even be part of an upbringing? If so, why? This is uh, of fundamental importance because, mm. um, if, well, you know, the Quran says, Holy Quran. That God has only created the men and the jinn to worship Him, and so that's the because of the fundamental purpose of our creation. Kids, of course, you know it's a scientific established fact that children in the formative years of of, of childhood learn the morals they learn become the principles, the experiences whether positive or negative become the things that dictate their personality and their instincts and their the the, the, the way they are for the rest of their life. And, and um, Muslims' primary purpose is to worship God, so it's important to inculcate that from an early age as possible. As for teaching them spirituality or not, there's a thing nowadays, with like, especially with like atheism, that's, that you shouldn't teach kids spirituality or about God because mm. they don't make that choice, so you're kind of forcing them or indoctrinating them. But the thing is, atheists or whatever the way will always teach their children not to steal and not to, not to hurt other people and 
to to be kind to others. So everybody, whether you believe in a particular belief system or not, you're teaching your kids, according to the best of your knowledge, how to behave because you don't want your kids to suffer in life or to do to do to do wrong. And obviously, for a believer, the most important thing to teach them before anything else is having a relationship with God, because that's the whole point that you and your children exist. True, true. You know how how does prayer help build and maintain resilience in a child throughout their life? Uh, so there's a good point. Another like um, I think of atheists is that like uh, religious people tend to give up and say, you know, we can't do anything. God is all powerful, and it mm. doesn't teach you to develop your abilities. But what prayer does in 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 it's interesting because in, in in part it encourages you, and in part it teaches you that to 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 literally give up. It teaches you to give up in that there's some things you can't control and ultimately your life is in the hands of God and so that gives you the reassurance that ultimately it's not all on you and ultimately God is protecting you but at the same time it gives you an unparalleled sense of belief that you can achieve things because you know that if you try your best and you pray to God, God will help you and this doesn't apply in either either case, it doesn't apply to those who don't believe in God and don't have that relationship with God as part of their life. True, you know, one of the questions coming in my mind is very, you know, from a child perspective, you know, when you tell them that you should uh, pray to God, that you should be, you know, loving God, they simply ask why. Can you answer this why, please? Good question. Um, because we teach children that when someone's, you know, you see children, like when when you give something to a child, the parent tells the child to say thank you, hmm. to, to, to be appreciative and to be grateful for what you have. And to not think, take things in your life for granted and to appreciate the value of money, to appreciate the value of family and the value of hard work. In the same way, if you owe, if a child owes you thanks when you give them a gift, then God has given you everything that you own and everything you have hmm. more than anybody deserves your gratefulness. And so teaching gratefulness to God from there stems gratefulness to people because, you know, the saying of the prophet, peace be upon him, that anyone who is not grateful to people is grateful to God. Is not grateful to God, sorry. So being grateful to God leads you to be grateful to the people that God has put in the world who help you out. True. Uh, you know, uh, the second caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim community had assigned the following motto for the youth, nations cannot reform without the reformation of the youth. What was the wisdom behind this and what does it uh, emphasize? In every nation and every kind of country or society, um, the state of the youth naturally dictates the state of the future, the, 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 the future of the nation or the, or, or the people. And reflecting that eternal wisdom, the second caliph of the Middle Peace with him said that for a, for the for the for the Ahmadi Muslim community to to ensure its future as a a God fearing community, a righteous community, a community that's close to God. Um, you need to watch out for and look after and ensure the moral training of the youth. And particularly because the youth, more than any f section of society, are still developing and understanding, developing their understanding of the world and who they are and trying to find their place in the world. Teaching them at, 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 at that formative and fragile stage in their life, the principles of worshipping God and the principles of spirituality means that thereby you ensure the, the, the future, the, the successful future of any organization or community, including our own. Uh, that's absolutely right. You know, uh, Mustafa, would you like to share some, you know, the, the example from the life of the Holy Prophet? 
uh, peace be upon him, that how he, you know, did the best upbringing of the children around him, in the, uh, his own children, his grandchildren. Yeah, the the Prophet um, just suddenly came to my mind was the example of mm. the uh, of the Prophet uh, peace be upon him prostrating on on the ground, and his his grandson Hassan and Hussein would come and crawl on his back, and uh, but he wouldn't he wouldn't get up from prostration mm. until. Um, they got off his back and would wait there until they got off. And the fact that we know this means that someone saw it, and therefore these that's reached us by narration. Mm. And so when and and so if someone noticing saw it, these those children would have remembered it themselves, and so they would have had that rem- their memory of their grandfather of, mm. of climbing their grandfather's back when he was prostrating, and him waiting and staying there until until they didn't get off. And that's just an example that came to my mind that when you give that kind of, when you show that kind of patience in your prayer, then you set an example that kids and adults alike will look up to. Um, That's absolutely right. You know, one thing, you know, we have seen or we see every day, sometimes there are parents, they always say, you know, yes, whatever the children is asking, you know, they know that that's not right. But even then, they do not tell them to, you know, do something. When the life of the Holy Prophet, we find some, you know, uh, incidents where the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, has said something to his daughter and grandchildren when the charity was there. Would you like to share those incidents, if you don't mind? Yeah. Uh, which one are you talking about specifically? About Hazrat Fatima, when... The, the the way she did to the beard regarding that uh, she should not be you know if she lies there if she does something if she, she steals something ah uh, yes yes of course of course yes yes yeah so um uh, moving on from prayer, prayer a bit hmm. but it's the same it's the same idea of absolutely you're right that the prophet said that even if my own daughter Fatima was caught stealing then I'd have her hand cut off which is uh, establishing the the, the the fundamental importance of absolute justice for all. Hmm. True. Uh, th- thank you very much, uh, Mustafa Siddiqui, who's a missionary, uh, for joining us uh, with in Voice Islam show and uh, giving us insight that how one, uh, you know, the parents should be uh, bring their children and cultivate love of Allah the Almighty in their hearts. Zakumullah, thank you very much for joining us today. Zakumullah, thank you for having me. As we are discussing, uh, of course, sometime we. Uh, there are parents, they just uh, focus on uh, children's happiness. Sometimes uh, the other extreme is that people are, you know, the parents are, uh, you know, just discouraging uh, children on, on every occasion. Of course, Islam uh, taught us that one should find or should, you know, f- uh, follow the middle way. And this is the best way, of course, of doing the upbringing of the children. And it is very important that <clears throat> we should also create love of God Almighty in the hearts of our children because there are so many things they learn through the the, the, the love of Allah the Almighty. They, when they read the teachings, they read, when they read that what God has, you know, asked them to do, what things they should be doing, what things they should be refraining away from, then, you know, you would see you know, our best person among us. And for that, it is very important to show them that this is the way you have to go. You have to love God Almighty. You have to go through the teachings and see yourself 
what God has for you and by following all those good things which is mentioned in the teachings from God one can become <clears throat> a successful person if we go to the Holy Quran I would like to read a few verses of the Holy Quran where it says that my Lord grant me pure offspring from thyself when a parent having children it is very important for them that they should pray to God Almighty that oh God God whatever you're going to give me whether it's son or daughter they should be you know a pure heart they should be you know a children which you know follow the the, the the commands of God Almighty and they are the children who are obedient and they are you know best children even though all the children are best but if you pray for that and definitely God listens to the prayers and ultimately God grant the pure offspring from himself then if we should focus on teaching and training our children to Allah that we should pray to God and trust in Allah and we find in the Holy Quran as Ibrahim used to pray that my Lord make me observe prayer and my children too so we should be continuously praying for ourselves for our children so they follow the right path and then the Holy Quran teaches us that enjoin prayer on the family and be constant therein adherence to the five daily prayers should be an essential part of a Muslim's life because it helps build resilience that we have been discussing throughout the show in children it fosters discipline responsibility and purity in children the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community used to say that he learned to be regular in prayer because his mother insisted on observing the daily prayers on time in congregation in the mosque. In his early childhood, she had him lifted off his bed and put under water if he did not wake up for the dawn prayer, which is the prayer in the, in, in the morning. Initially, Ensuring punctual observing of the five daily prayers is important. Later, by the grace of Allah, the quality of their prayers will improve and their love for and trust in Allah will naturally flow, follow. And finally, according to the Holy Quran, their prayers will safeguard them against indecency and evil, which is very important when we see around us. And it is important that we should continuously praying and inculcating the love of God Almighty in their hearts and of course we need to teach our children that they should seek help with patience and prayer to God Almighty and God Almighty definitely listens to his uh, you know uh, humans and uh, mankind and answer the uh, prayers thank you very much for joining us today and uh, you know benefiting from today's show I hope you have benefited I would like to thank at the end the producer of uh, today's shows Farah Mirza and uh, Sofia Amir and the technical team Aqib Ahmed. Thank you very much for everything and thank you for joining us today. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.